Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Sabine Howard from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. In this episode, we talk to Michael Arbib, who is the Fletcher Jones Professor of Computer Science, as well as a Professor of Biological Sciences, Biomedical Engineering, Electrical Engineering, Neuroscience, and Psychology at the University of Southern California. Thanks to his skill of working in a network of interdisciplinary fields linking computer scientists and engineers with neuroscientists and cognitive scientists, He's been inspiring roboticists around the world on how to build brainy and emotional machines. Today he'll be giving us some insight as to why we cry at the movies and how imitation and language acquisition might have came about in humans. From the neurons to the machines and from faked emotions to real ones, he gives us his view on robots today and tomorrow. Hi Michael, welcome to Talking Robots. I'm happy to be here. You're very well known in the field of neuroscience, especially for your work on mirror systems. So what's so special with mirror neurons? Well, the general interest I've had for a very long time is how vision is used to control action. And one of the teams I was working with in Italy, led by Giacomo Rizzolati, was doing work on neurons in the brain of the monkey that are used to control hand movements. And to their amazement, they found that among the neurons they were looking at that controlled hand movements, there was a subset that actually lit up not only when the monkey himself was doing the action, but when he saw someone else do the action. And so they called those neurons mirror neurons. And the idea is that somehow this ability to link what you are doing with your observation of what others are doing could be very important both for acquiring skills and for social behavior. What other types of animals other than the monkey have these mirror neurons, and in what parts of the brain are they? Well, surprisingly, there hasn't been all that much work on mirror neurons in other animals. Um, Some people think that the uh, system by which male birds learn their songs could involve mirror neurons for birdsong. The big spin-off actually has been into the study of humans, where we can't look at the the neurons individually, but we can do brain imaging and see what chunks of the brain light up for actions and for the observation of actions. And these have been found in uh, towards the back of the brain, in the front of the brain, in what is called premotor cortex. Very excitingly, they've been found uh, related to the language areas in the front of the brain, but also other areas of the brain involved in emotion. So the idea is that uh, mirror neurons provide that bridge between what you are doing and your observation of what others are doing. And this can work whether it's for seeing what people are doing in practical actions, looking at language, or sharing emotions. You just mentioned language acquisition. How can mirror systems be used in this scenario? Well, the very crucial idea about uh, language is the parity principle. The idea, not the parrots speak, but rather that parity, P-A-R-I-T-Y, that what you say is roughly what I hear and what I uh, intend to say is roughly what you hear. And the suggestion is the mirror system, by linking um, the way in which I produce a word with my ability to perceive the word you're saying, 
provides a shared representation in my head that lets me then access everything I know about the meaning of that word, whether I'm planning my own speech or whether I'm making sense of your speech. And what Rizzolatti and I did in a paper called Language Within Our Grasp was to provide a scenario whereby a brain similar to that of the monkeys might have evolved over 20 million years to go from a basic mirror system for recognizing actions to a more complicated mirror system that could support imitation of actions to the use of that imitation in communication and finally to a brain that can support language as it does today in humans but not in other species. Do you think that implementing such mirror neural systems in robots could help them learn or imitate behaviors or even develop some language? Right. So uh, let me take that in two stages. The first thing is that mirror neurons by themselves don't imitate. They just recognize actions. And part of our current research is to say, what do you have to add to a monkey-like mirror system to get a system that not only recognizes actions, but can also say, oh, I recognize that action is new, but I also recognize that it is useful. So I need to add it to my repertoire so I can achieve goals that I couldn't achieve otherwise. And so several groups, um, especially in Europe, have now been looking into ways to use that mirror-based imitation thing for robots. And the point is sort of twofold. If I just instruct you explicitly, do this exact sequence of actions, that's fine. But what happens if you're in a different situation? So we have to get robots that can both um, understand what goals are being sought by the model that they're imitating and also how to adapt those goals. And then we have a system that can really imitate on the basis of recognizing that this action is like my action, that's using the mirror system, but then recognizing that it's not quite like my action. So can I now recognize the difference? And then putting the old action and the difference together, I end up with imitating a new behavior. To what depth is it interesting to, to model such mirror systems in robots or software? I mean, should we be modeling uh, all the bells and whistles of neural systems with the axons, synapses, and neurons, or, or should we be abstracting? Right. The, the idea has been more to do it at a functional level, to say, okay, let's look at uh, certain regions of the brain. Let's look at their input-output behavior. Let's look at their memory behavior. And then, uh, for example, we've made a, a computer model using adaptive neurons, uh, which can observe a number of behaviors and recognize that they belong to the same action. And so it's at a level of fairly simplified neurons, rather than which can be easily run in computer hardware or software, rather than going into the very complicated real biology with all its neurochemistry and so on. So in other words... Um, in terms of the depth of modeling, uh, we now know so much about the molecular biology and neurochemistry of the brain that, we, that many scientists spend their whole lives just looking at one single synapse, one connection between brains trying to probe its mysteries. So uh, our philosophy has been more of a top-down. Let's look at the overall brain. Let's look at the subsystems. Let's look at how the subsystems interact. Let's look at a simplified view of the interactions in the subsystem. And we keep adding details from the biology as we discover. They help us make the system work better on the robot or in the computer simulation. Can you give us an example of a robot task which can be achieved based on these systems? Well, the... The two main areas that people have been looking at have been control of um, 
of hand movements, doing things like how do you hit a ball or things of that kind. And on the other hand, um, equipping robots with simplified faces and coming up with the generation and recognition of facial expressions, which ties more into the emotional system than into the hand system. I'm really scared of spiders, and when I see one crawling up uh, one of my friend's leg, I'll probably feel panicked or feel one crawling up my own leg even though there's no spider on me. Should I blame the mirror neurons? I, I don't know whether I'd blame the mirror neurons, and I wouldn't only blame the mirror neurons, but, but the idea is that you have learned to associate that with a certain type of fear, and so the idea is that that system uh, is able to recognize what's happening to another person or what another person is doing. I'm not sure that seeing the spider crawling up the leg would be uh, a mirror neuron, but I think if you saw their face, as they reacted to the spider, and then you went through the same reaction without seeing the spider. I would think that would be more what the mirror neurons are doing as part of the, the emotional system, where you're able to share expressions and to have that empathy where you don't just recognize that somebody is sad or angry, but you share their sadness or their anger by, by recreating a neural state in your own head that corresponds to what you would have if you were having the emotion directly yourself. So would you say that in general mirror neurons are the, the basis of empathy or the expression of emotions? Uh, I always take more of a, a, a network view. The mirror neurons don't do it by themselves. They're part of a larger system. Put them in a system that's involved in the control of grasping and you've got the ability to recognize what other people are doing with their hands. Put it in terms of a system that does emotions and then you're into an emotional empathy system. So, for example, there are regions in the brain that seem to be associated with different emotions. The amygdala is a region that seems to be particularly linked to fear. The um, insula is a region that seems to be linked to disgust. Uh, so the notion is that mirror neurons by themselves aren't giving you the emotion. It's because they recognize, in this case, the emotional expression and being tightly coupled to these different areas of the brain that the system itself then thanks to the role of the mirror neurons in the larger system, creates the brain state in which you share that emotion. You've been very active in the area of robot emotions with your book on Who Needs Emotions? The Brain Meets the Robot, edited with Jean-Marc Felloux. Uh, first of all, what, what do you think an emotion is? Well, I, I'm not sure at this stage. I, I really know what an emotion is. We, we basically start from, from two different uh, directions. One is that uh, when you are emotionally engaged, your body may change its state. Uh, you, if you're angry, you're going to have a very different bodily state from if you're sad or if you're happy. Uh, different hormones may affect the body. Your muscles may tense up or relax. So one aspect of emotion that people have thought about is the, the bodily aspect. There are also visceral changes. On the other hand, most of us, when we talk about emotions, think about somehow that feeling that we have that we can talk about. And uh, this has led to people in the research on human emotions trying to go back and forth between what is the bodily state that we can study in animals and really look at what their brains are doing and what is the, the sort of more humanistic description of the emotion. So, for example, fear um, we can look at fairly objectively uh, if a, a rat is afraid, he might freeze in place because of his fear or he might run away because of his fear. So we can 
come up with behavioral measures of the fear and link that to states of the brain. And then we can say, okay, when humans go through similar behaviors, we can hypothesize that similar things happen in their brain. But in the case of humans, we can talk to them and say, what are your feelings? And then we can try to build a more integrated view, which links feelings, facial expression of emotion, bodily state, and what's going on in the brain. What type of emotions should robots be embedded with, and how should we embed them with emotions? Well, at the moment, the focus is really in terms of um, making robots that work with humans more effective by allowing them to, I would say, simulate or emulate emotions rather than have emotions. So... Um, Roz Picard, who works on this at um, MIT, has as her favorite example that there's that infuriating little help um, icon, the smiling paperclip on the um, on Microsoft Windows, and it keeps smiling even when it's giving you the wrong advice all the time, and this can be very annoying. So just by having that able to look sad when it's messing up and not giving you the help you need. And smiling just when it gives you the right result would make it less annoying and you'd actually be able to work better because of that. So that's a very trivial example, but it gives the idea that robots that interact with humans, if they can detect uh, something about human facial expression and adjust the way in which they uh, communicate on the basis of that by giving, if the robot has a face uh, adjusting the facial expression, if the robot has a voice adjusting the, the intonation, the emotional shading, then you'll have better communication. But that isn't having an emotion. It's emulating an emotion to better communicate with humans. Uh, and so one of the things that I talked about in my chapter uh, in the book with Jean-Marc was uh, what happens if, for example, you sent a group of robots to Mars and uh, over time they modified, self-organized through, through neural adaptation and so on, their programs. Um, would they have their own emotions, because they wouldn't be trying to communicate with humans up there. They'd be trying to communicate with each other. And I think the notion, if you sort of try to go back to why we have emotions in the first place, you might say that you make a high, you, it's not that you consciously make it, your body commits you, your brain commits you to a high order decision. Anger says, I'm going to mobilize all my resources for a fight. Um, Fear says, I'm going to mobilize all my resources to get out of this mess. And so the notion is that the robots of the future, in addition to having built-in communication with human-type emotions, might in many workplaces have high-level uh, decisions in a hierarchy of possible action. And these high-level commitments would correspond to emotions in the same way that anger and fear mobilize your bodily resources in different ways. And then by switching into that high-level mode, it gives you access to just the appropriate routines for acting efficiently in the, the current situation. So I think that is the hypothesis that I offered in, in that chapter as to how, in the end, robots might not so much be given emotions as they are now to help human communication, but might develop through the learning capability of their network controllers, a class of high-level commitments to action that would do pretty much for the robots what um, emotions do for humans and 
similar animals. One of the chapters in your book was entitled Beware the Passionate Robot. So what should we be aware of? The, the point I was making there simply is that uh, although most of the time emotions, and this was based on my personal experience, although most of the time the emotions actually add savor and richness to my life, every now and again I lose my temper, unfortunately. And in that case, the, the commitment to an emotion rather than helping my interactions with other people messes them up. Um, and, and so what I was saying was that a lot of the chapters in the book were just assuming emotions are a good thing, end of story. And I was saying that we should really say emotions are usually a good thing, but let's be aware of when by committing us to a course of action that actually turns out not to be right. But when we start looking at the details, it's too late. We're committed. That's basically what is happening in the case of losing one's temper. One has become angry and then the momentum, as it were, of the bodily state just keeps you angry. You can't switch. So um, I was just saying that has to be taken into account when you think about what happens with robot emotions. Uh, but I, I, I don't think emotion as such really poses new problems for robotics. Um, however, we design them, we're going to have to put in certain commitments to how, what they're working on and have the, uh, the safeguards built in. When it comes to autonomous robots really living out in space, um, it's going to be much more difficult if we want them to adapt to changing circumstances. We can't plan in advance what the adaptations are, but perhaps we can give them criteria that will at least let them evaluate how they're learning and how they're adapting and uh, rein in certain types of behavior accordingly. You're truly at the crossing of an interdisciplinary field, working with neuroscientists, cognitive scientists, engineers, and computer scientists. Uh, so what are the main challenges in, and joys in doing this? Well, for me, the joy is, is, in fact, to be able to talk to different people, ask them questions, understand what they're doing. Um, the challenges are twofold. Um, at a personal level, it, it's the fact that science is exploding. There is so much knowledge that to be broad uh, runs the risk of not being deep enough in particular areas. And so in some sense, I try to chart a, a path which allows me to, to grab enough information from different areas that I make a cross-cutting uh, approach that's of sufficient depth to still be worthwhile. Um, the, the challenge is that most people are not as interdisciplinary and so um, there's an issue of organizing a team. How do you get people who do have a narrow focus, but you recognize that focus as part of what the team needs? How do you motivate them to, to look up from, let's say, the, the biochemical details of a, a neuron connection, a synapse, to really worry about what that synapse is doing as part of allowing the overall animal or the overall robot to learn? And then the, the final challenge is that we alternate between funding agencies that get very excited about interdisciplinary work and funding that gets very focused on particular disciplines. So uh, we have feast and famine. I'd say at the moment, Europe, Europe is going through a golden age for interdisciplinary work with a great deal of the uh, EU's funding going into interdisciplinary endeavors. So in that sense, it's, it's a good time to be able to build teams of like-minded people. But then, as I say, once you've built them, the problem is to keep them engaged with the big cross-cutting study 
uh, and not just have them use the funds they've got to go back and look only at the details of their own speciality, isolated from the overall concerns. I just learned that you have your robot counterpart with the robot Arbib. So what is this robot? Oh, yeah, that, this was really amusing. Uh, uh, in the year 2000, um, Damper and his colleagues in Southampton in England published a uh, paper on Arbib. It was a fairly simple robot that um, it had a little nervous system of spiking neurons, and it had some reflexes built in, and it could learn to do new things by uh, being conditioned to, to make different associations. But I must confess that what really made me very happy about the paper <laughs> was that they, having named their robot after me, they then turned my name into um, an acronym, and it turned out that ARBIB actually meant autonomous robot based on inspirations from biology, A-R-B-I-B. And so I was finally revealed to the world as not actually human, but um, a biologically inspired robot. Okay, let's talk a bit about the future now. Do you think we're going towards robots with artificial brains resembling more and more the human brain in the future? I don't think so. Um, I think what it will be will be, um, uh, uh, okay, well, I think what is interesting about the brain is that it's not just a collection of neurons. It's highly structured. Different parts of the brain have very different um, specialities. They're built of very different neurons. The neurons have different biochemistry. They're linked to different streams of information. So what we're going to is looking at at computers for robot-like systems, in other words, systems that have to handle perception and control of action, as well as complicated memory and planning analysis. We're going to be looking at them more and more in terms of how do we build a network of semi-specialized processes talking to each other, rather than in terms of of that. So I think in some places, like near the visual periphery, I do think that the design of the processes will be very much influenced by the highly parallel processing strategies of the brain. I do think throughout the system, we will have uh, learning mechanisms which allow us to program in a, an approximation to how the system should behave and then have it tune that through experience. But for example, at the output side, although people have invested a lot in artificial muscles, um, it's probably true that we'll be getting more and more compact motors to move joints by rotary actuation or sliding actuation and things of that kind. And when we reflect that back into the, uh, the controllers of the robot, the controllers will then use some principles from, for example, the study of the cerebellum, which makes us act gracefully, but they'll be tuned not to control um, the muscles of an animal, but tuned to control the wheels and rotary joints and so on of, of a robot. So I, I see a very strong conversation between those of us getting uh, more and more insight into how the brain allows us to exist in complex environments with those of us who are building more and more subtle uh, robots. But I think the conclusion will be this uh, highly distributed computer architecture for the robot with some pieces looking very brain-like, some pieces not looking brain-like, but using um, what I'll call brain operating principles in their design, and others will be just neat little special order uh, systems that have nothing to do with the biology. Uh, my standard example there is if you want to add up a list of numbers, you don't 
do it like the brain does it. You have very efficient circuitry that does the job very well, so use that circuitry. In your fields of research, where do you think the biggest advances will be made in the next 20 years? Aha! Uh -huh. I haven't a clue. Uh, <laughs> we've got so many people working on so many exciting things. Um, what I think might be worth saying is that our whole discussion uh, has been in terms of looking at the brain in terms of, as it were, neurons on up to build systems that can perceive, feel emotions, act on the world. Um, we've added to those neurons powerful learning capabilities. But if we look at neuroscience now, there's a huge amount of insight being built by looking at the neuron itself as something that is as complex as um, a whole computer is today in terms of tens of thousands of connections, each of those connections being vastly complicated chemical machines. Meanwhile, people are getting insight into those machines by using the techniques of molecular biology. And we've just seen the sequencing of the human genome. There's going to be a huge amount of work coming as we try to unravel what all those genes are doing in relation to our bodies generally, but our brains in particular. So I suspect that the real challenge is going to be how do you take all that specialized information coming out at the lowest level of biochemistry and molecular biology and DNA and the human genome, and how do you take all that insight we're beginning to get into the high-level system organization, which has dominated our discussion today, and how do we integrate them? How do we build those interdisciplinary teams where people can happily move back and forth between the finest detail of um, molecules being formed inside the living cell and the demands of robots cooperating on Mars to um, map a complicated territory? In all fields of robotics now, how do you think uh, robotics will have changed our everyday life in the future? Well, <laughs> we're beginning to see robots entering our life. Uh, until recently, robots just existed, for example, on the assembly line. Uh, now many people have simple robotic vacuum cleaners in their houses. Um, in some sense, a motor car is becoming more like a complicated robot. Uh, we're beginning to get systems which will use optic flow to make sure you don't crash into the car in front of you because it will sense the enlargement of the visual image as you get too close. Um, we'll probably have automatic lane changing. So in a sense, it's a bit like asking somebody in 1946 when we had one of the earliest computers crunching numbers uh, to, to come up with tables of mathematical functions and saying how will the computer impact our lives. And at that time, they would probably would have said, well, oh, we're going to really be able to compute bigger and bigger mathematical tables to more and more accuracy. And they would have been very excited about that. And the insurance firms would have been said, yes, we're going to build actuarial tables. We'll be able to increase our profit by more accurately predicting who are the risks and who are, who are not. And a world in which we can all uh, scan the world's knowledge by using a search engine like Google or Yahoo or Ask to, to answer almost any question in real time. Um, a world in which computers support uh, the pornography industry as well as fabulous scientific research. These are all things that would have been impossible to predict, I think, in 1946. And I, I think we may be in the same situation in robots. They're very limited in their application now. 
Um, in 50 years, they'll be everywhere. They'll just be part of our life. All of us will have lots of robot assistants. Some of them will look like robots. Perhaps others will be just devices that can sense the environment and take actions on our behalf, um, but won't look anything like a humanoid or an animal form. They'll just do a good job for us. So I, so I think the fact that we now have these um, robot vacuum cleaners in the home, the fact that we now have cars that share some aspects of, of a robot in sensing the environment and taking action, that gives you a little bit of a sense of the way in which robotics will become a seamless part of the human environment over the next 50 years. Thanks, Michael, for being here with us on Talking Robots. My pleasure. That was Michael Arbib from the University of Southern California on Robot Brains and Emotions. Hope to see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch.